I want to uh, confess that I am going to be preaching this morning with a deficiency. You would not know it unless I'm up front with you and tell you about it. And that is that um, many of you have heard of Alistair Begg. He is a preacher from Scotland who's pastored a church in Ohio for many years and has a program called Truth for Life. And of course, he, uh, I saw an article recently online that says that um, new professions of faith are up 300% when preachers preach with a Scottish accent. <laughs> and so there will be no new professions of faith today. Uh, but I find that intriguing. But by the way, that was from the Babylon Bee. So, but I, I always find that intriguing that people are so attracted to that Scottish accent. Although I guess it's not working too well in Scotland given the state of, of the country there today. I want to uh, tie three texts together this morning. And uh, the first one is Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 33. It says, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Get that. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. The other text is John chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. When Jesus has spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill, fill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup 
that the Father has given me. And finally, over in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John, verses 15 to 19, after the resurrection of Jesus, it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these precious words of grace that you provide to us through Jesus Christ. We pray that that grace would be felt in our hearts today and would motivate us, Lord, to greater obedience to you through the precious name of your Son. Amen. Peter has always been the celebrity of the apostles. He was a model disciple. He was loyal to and protective of his master, and he considered himself his master's right-hand man, his most trusted advisor. And the only problem was he wasn't playing with what you might say a full deck, and I don't mean by that that he had any kind of uh, mental deficiencies. I mean that in the sense that he had a skewed view of God's kingdom and therefore of God's Messiah. It's true that he did a lot of the same things that the other disciples did. He shared some of their weaknesses. Along with the other apostles, he was at the Last Supper. He, along with James and John, went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and like them, he slept while Jesus fought the greatest and the worst battle that's ever been fought, and Jesus fought that battle all alone as he faced the cross. But don't be too harsh on Peter. He also risked his life by following Jesus all the way into the very courtyard where Jesus went on trial. I read that story about the blind man who was able to see in two stages, and there's nowhere else in the four Gospels where anyone is healed in two stages. But that story is placed there strategically by Mark right before Peter, on behalf of the other apostles, confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus tells them, and it says he tells them very plainly that he's going to go to Jerusalem to be put to death by the authorities and then to be raised from the dead only to have Peter try to stop him. The story of the blind man who saw men as trees walking in the first stage of his healing is a metaphor for the apostles who did not see Jesus clearly for the Messiah that he was. He was a suffering Messiah, and they saw him as a sword Messiah. I want to go against the prevailing idea that Peter was a coward when he denied Jesus. And we often make a lot out of the fact that Peter really didn't know himself when he told Jesus that he would die for him. We say that 
He had an inflated view of his own courage, but then he denied Jesus three times. And we use that as an example of how we can all make bold statements under the illusion of what we will or we won't do in certain circumstances until we're in those circumstances and then we don't recognize ourselves. We can all be full of bluster. I remember my son when he was about 10 years old when the church was over on Route 88 in Bricktown, we lived uh, behind a 7-Eleven in, in, the, in the parsonage. And uh, you know, as your kids get older, you, have, you want to give them a little more liberty, but you're a little nervous sometimes at the same time. So one time he wanted to go up to the 7-Eleven by himself. And I said, well, you know, what, if you, what, what happens if uh, somebody comes out and attacks you? What are you going to do? And he goes through all these karate moves, how he's going to hit them this way and give them a round kick and give them this and that. And I said, well, what if it's two guys? Well, then he goes through all these other maneuvers. And, you know, we, we know children think that way, but so do adults. But think about it. Peter really was willing to die for Jesus. He meant it. He did know himself. The problem wasn't with Peter's commitment, nor was his problem cowardice. His problem was that he was committed to the wrong Messiah. He let the world, the flesh, and the devil define the Messiah. Peter let Caesar be the model of lordship. Have you ever noticed how people can be so blinded by what they're seeing or to what they're hearing because those things go against what they want to see or what they want to hear. They're blinded by their own prejudices. Jesus tried to tell them so many times that he came to die at the hands of the authorities. But Peter and the rest filtered that out through the lens of what the philosopher Nietzsche would call the will to power. Jesus for them would be the ubermensch, the superman who would bring the kingdom of God by force. A couple of the disciples even had their mother appeal to the soft spot in Jesus' heart for a mother caring about her sons in order to grant them their wish of having one sit on his right hand and one on his left hand when he came to his throne in his kingship. And when the temple police arrived, it's Peter who suddenly becomes Sir Galahad and draws his sword to fight for Jesus just like he said he would. But Jesus missed his cues. Peter was doing his part, but Jesus wasn't doing his part. Peter was baffled when Jesus stopped him and told him to put away his sword and then heal the ear of the high priest's servant. The problem wasn't Peter. The problem was Jesus. Jesus is always the problem. He wouldn't conform to Peter's expectations. There were bumper stickers and there were badges that once said frequent, that uh, frequently you would see them around and they would say, Jesus is the answer. And cynics would say, well, what's the question? But I think there's a place for a, Logan that say, for a slogan that says, Jesus is the problem. And he is. Jesus was Peter's problem. And righteous people are always the problem for an unrighteous society. You remember the case in the Old Testament where you had that wicked king Ahaz, and he's going to meet with Elijah the prophet. And when he gets out into the desert and he sees him off in the distance, he says to Elijah, is that you, you troublemaker of Israel? Well, Ahab was really the troublemaker of Israel, but Elijah was the thorn in his side. 
Jesus was the most righteous of all. He's always a problem for all of us to the extent that we try to make him into something or someone that he isn't. Peter must have been completely shocked when from his perspective as a fighter, Jesus' behavior was more like a coward than a brave military general. And what else could Peter do but run away when Jesus let himself be arrested? And he did let himself be arrested, but he told them that that was going to happen. He told them in John 10 that he was going to lay down his life for his sheep, that it wouldn't be taken from him against his will, but he would lay it down. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And did they hear him? Peter runs away like the other disciples as Jesus is taken under guard to the high priest's house of interrogation. But he runs away not because he's a coward, but because he's confused. And I wonder really if any of the disciples fled because they were cowards. I don't see cowardice on the part of any of them prior to the garden. What I see is a group of brave men who failed to hear what Jesus was trying to tell them, thrown into confusion when Jesus yields to the very plan of God. Peter wasn't a coward. He reappears following cautiously, keeping his distance, hanging out in the courtyard and waiting to hear the news of what happens to Jesus. And all along, he's trying to make sense of what's happened. And I believe that if Jesus suddenly gave Peter the cue right then and there, he would have gotten up and he would have fought. Peter would have fought right there in the courtyard. And that's where Peter's following of Jesus stops. Jesus never gave him that cue. He's not sure who he's been following. And this man who had so much power to raise the dead and make the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk, he surely could lead an army to victory or do it single-handedly. When those people in the courtyard identified Peter as one of Jesus' disciples, what did he say? He said, I don't know the man. Now, on one level, he was lying. He did know Jesus. But on another level, he didn't know Jesus. And he was telling the truth. And it's the same as if someone that you've known for many years does something so out of character that you're baffled and you say, I don't even know you. I thought I knew you, but I don't even know you. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I've had people have certain expectations of me that I know are false, and they're just setting me up for failure, and they're setting themselves up for disappointment. They think I have talents or knowledge that I don't have. Peter's understanding of the kingdom of God has just been shattered. And that's often what is, has, has to happen for us to see God's ways and God's plans and even to see ourselves more clearly. Our self-deceptions and false assumptions have to be shattered. The expectations we put on God are out of line with the scriptures. Our self-righteousness has, has to be swept out to sea. In other words, we have to see ourselves as failures. Failures not only to obey as we should, but failures to understand as we should. Peter followed Jesus further than any of the, of the other disciples, except for John. And even John stood at the foot of the cross, and I think John was starting to get it. He was the disciple Jesus loved, who was closest to the heart of Jesus. But Peter fell, and he failed because he abandoned the way of the cross long before Jesus even gets to the cross. 
You remember Mary of Bethany, whose extravagant devotion to Jesus included her devotion to his death. And she opened an alabaster flask of very expensive perfume and she wasted it by pouring it on the head and the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, in pouring that ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. She accepted that he was going to die. And Peter was no less extravagantly devoted to Jesus, but his devotion was all about making sure Jesus did not die. He wanted to die for Jesus, but he couldn't accept that Jesus had to die for him. And because he got Jesus all wrong, he also got discipleship all wrong. He was bound to fail. He had to fail in order to be a real disciple. God is in the business of remaking us, and he does it by breaking us. And I'm not saying go out and fail purposely, but I am saying you will fail in many ways, and instead of distancing yourself from those failures, you embrace them as opportunities for God to remake you stronger and wiser and more humble. The cross is a testimony to our failures and God's success. And the two cannot reside on the cross together. There's no room on the cross for our success and God's success at the same time. There's only room for our failure and God's success. In the cross, God bears our failure and in bearing our failure, he succeeds in saving us so that our success is in him and not in ourselves. Even a stellar disciple like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7:18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And so what's the answer? Paul says, I'm going to try harder. And if I try harder, I know that I'll make some progress, maybe not as much as I would like. No, Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what Peter couldn't see on that side of the cross is that God's way of kingdom building, building is the way of failure and loss. It's ironic that Peter will do anything to save Jesus from the cross but he cannot accompany Jesus on his way to the cross. He wouldn't accept and couldn't accept the cross. And it was that stumbling block that the Jews had that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, and it was that foolishness that the Greeks had or the Gentiles. Peter did not know the Christ of the cross, he only knew the Christ of the sword. He had that zeal without knowledge that Paul said that all of the Jews had in Romans 10, including Paul himself, until Jesus saved him. Perhaps he followed Jesus as far as he did because he thought that maybe Jesus really would call on those legions of angels to his rescue. But when his disciple, or, but when his eyes locked with the eyes of Jesus, you remember that scene in the courtyard where Jesus stops and looks directly into the eyes of Peter. And when their eyes locked, as he was sitting in that courtyard around that fire, after he denied knowing him three times, he knew. That was a turning point. He knew that Jesus was taking the path of suffering and death, and he, Peter, was not ready for that path. But God is the master redeemer of failure. And unlike the world and our culture, God loves failures. 
This misconception that Peter had about Jesus as the Messiah set him up for failure because salvation isn't by might or by power, but it's by the Spirit of God. And that misconception had to fail because the kingdom of God isn't about flesh and blood thrones and militaries, but about salvation from sin. His misconception had to fail because Rome or Russia or China or material poverty are not our greatest enemy, but the sin that resides deep in our own hearts is our greatest enemy. And so the social justice warriors have it all wrong. While the concept of social justice is good, the sin in our hearts makes it impossible to achieve without corruption, without setting up a whole new system of oppression, racial equality. How's that being achieved? It's by setting up a new racism, gender equality, by oppressing one of the two genders and telling the lie that gender is a social construct or is fluid, education equality, by replacing education with indoctrination and leaving our future generation dumbed down and ripe for manipulation. In the name of social justice, we're sowing the seeds of chaos and confusion, and not just ruining, but destroying a whole generation of young people. John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival back in the late 60s had that song, Run Through the Jungle. Satan is on the loose, he said, and we are running through a jungle of our own making. Peter was confused because sin confuses. And God's salvation is about delivering us from confusion with his truth, his truth personified in Jesus Christ and written in the scriptures. And God doesn't confuse us unless it's in judgment for confusion that we have chosen by rejecting his truth. Then he sends us more of what we've chosen. And so here are the two ways Peter's failure proved to be his salvation, or should I say, open the door for God's salvation. First, his illusions were shattered. He didn't just slip up, fall down, pick himself up, and move on. He got Jesus and discipleship all wrong. There was no picking up where he left off. He had to start off on a whole new basis. And that meant giving up the idea that his courage, his initiative, and his devotion to Jesus could save Jesus from death and make him Jesus' greatest disciple and make sure Jesus succeeds. Why do so many churches have so many programs that mimic the glamour and the glitter of the world to help Jesus succeed? In order to get kids to be baptized, let's have a bouncy house and pony rides and ice cream, all which go contrary to the very meaning of baptism, which is dying to the flesh and the ego and taking the way of the cross and the way of self-denial and the way of sacrifice. The mindset of a lot of churches today is let's help Jesus succeed. And do you know how we help Jesus succeed? By renouncing the idea that we need to help Jesus succeed. Instead, we need to be living lights of failures saved by grace. The way of the cross is hard and it's demanding and sometimes painful and we should not try to make it look otherwise. It's a narrow uphill way where our egos refuse to go because they can't make it to the top intact. 
It's a way that requires we discard excess baggage made up of our dearest dreams and our most cherished images of ourselves because they hold us back or don't fit on the pathway. And so Peter's failure teaches us God's kingdom and our salvation won't come by way of government and politics. They come only by way of the cross and the resurrection of Christ, both of which will eventually obliterate the uselessness of the Democrat Party and the Republican Party and the Communist Party and the globalist aspirations of Davos, which is another Tower of Babel where men are reaching to the heavens to be gods. And the other thing that Peter's failure teaches us is that failure doesn't disqualify us from discipleship. It's just the opposite. Only failures can be disciples. Not just big failures in the way that Peter was, but also little everyday failures. Failures is, failure is God's opportunity to show us that his grace is always greater. Sometimes we need to learn that while we uh, thought we were pursuing God's way, we were actually pursuing our own way. When we think we're pursuing God's vision, we're pursuing our vision and wanting God to bless it with success. That's why I harp on the importance oftentimes of reading, rereading, and reading again and again the Word of God so you see yourself more clearly and see God more clearly. And as you read, you should be repenting. And yes, you should be reading Scripture as an act of worship and praise, but you should also be repenting your way through Scripture as you see yourself as the failure that you are. Peter had a lot of great qualities. And none of them were wasted by his new beginning. They just had to be yielded to God before they could be used by God. Even his willingness to die for Jesus had to be yielded to God. His willingness to die for Jesus could only be acceptable and produce fruit if he was willing to die for the Jesus who first died for him. He became what Jesus said he would become, but he could only get there by the way of failure that was redeemed through the cross. He would die for Jesus, but it wouldn't be in the way that Peter determined. In John 21 that I read earlier, truly, truly, I say to you, he said, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you uh, wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. That's the new Peter. That's the transformed Peter on the way to the cross. Notice the difference in Peter after the resurrection. Before the cross and resurrection, he was, even though all else, uh, everyone else denies you or they all fall away, I will not. Jesus told him before the night was over, he'd deny him three times. And it says Peter doubled down. It says in Mark 14, 31, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. I was the ego known as Peter standing on the platform of self-sufficiency and complete capability. But after the cross and resurrection, his ego, his identity didn't go away. He was still Peter. But the ego known as Peter was standing on the platform of humility and weakness that could only say, Lord, you know that I love you. That's all he was left with. Lord, you know my heart. In spite of my behavior, all I can hope in is that you know my heart, that I love you. And because I love you, I loathe my behavior. Now, where did that love for Jesus come from? It came from God the Father, 
When Peter confessed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Because God first loved Peter, he placed that love for Jesus in his heart. And that's true for all of us. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. You can love God and love him very much and still disappoint him by grieving the Holy Spirit. After David had committed these heinous sins against God of murder and adultery, in Psalm 51, 4, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he's saying what Peter said to Jesus, God, you know that I love you. That's the place all of us need to be brought to over and over again. That's all we're left with. Would our tongues betray us in him? When our eyes betray us and him, when we misuse our time and our opportunities, Lord, you know that I love you. Do we or don't we love the Lord? When we sin, when we fail, do we love the Lord so that we feel unworthy to come into his presence to read his word and to pray? That's how I feel at times. I feel like I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to pray because I'm unworthy. And what's the underlying platform of that way of thinking? I have to be worthy. I have to be successful. I have to be a saint in the sense of being successful in holy living. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. And what does David say in Psalm 51 after he confesses his egregious sins to God? Then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. In other words, Jesus is telling Peter to do exactly what David asked God for the grace to do. Preach the gospel of my grace that you've experienced in my love for you in spite of your sinfulness and your weakness. Now you know, Peter, what the gospel is. He had to fall flat on his face so that only Christ could lift him up, and then he would be fit to preach the gospel of the cross. Preachers can only preach the gospel out of their sinfulness in God's grace, not out of their righteousness, not out of their integrity. Should preachers have integrity? Absolutely. 1 Timothy 3 makes that clear. It says overseers, elders, pastors should be above reproach and given uh, and then gives a list of what it, that entails. But they don't preach the gospel out of their integrity. They can't preach the gospel without integrity, but their integrity is not the gospel. Their integrity is not what they preach. Integrity should express the gospel in their lives, but their integrity is not the gospel. Their sinfulness and God's grace in and only in Jesus Christ is the gospel. And I say that not just about preachers, but about all Christians. You do a great disservice to the gospel and other people if you present yourself as more righteous than others, as a person who trusts his own morality. Is your sinfulness part of the gospel? 
that you present to others? Do you share the gospel as a sinner or as someone who has the high moral ground? In this age, we're like the blind man in Mark 8 in the town of Bethsaida. In this age, we're in the trees walking stage because we have the New Testament. We see things more clearly than they did in the Old Testament and even more clearly than they did in the New Testament since we have centuries of church teachings. But we're still surrounded by darkness and confusion. And like Peter, we need to be brought out of that confusion by being rooted in God's truth. As we move toward the resurrection, when we will then be in the seize everything clearly stage, and that for all eternity. Our resurrection at the end of the age will be that second touch that Jesus gave the blind man. In the meantime, we're to love Jesus as Peter loved Jesus. There's the hymn by Elizabeth Payson Prentice that should be the prayer of all of us. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make. On bended knee, this is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. I want to tell you this morning that I had many failures as a pastor. And I had and have had many failures as a husband and many failures as a father and as a Christian. But that's the only way that I can come to Jesus and say, Lord, you know that I love you. My favorite movie, and I'll close with this, barring all other movies, is the movie No Country for Old Men. And it's about a sheriff played by Tommy Lee Jones who's getting close to retirement and he's seen it all. But what he's seen more than anything else is that it's getting more and more difficult to keep law and order because evil has become more and more pervasive and more irrational and more powerful. Criminals have more sophisticated ways of doing evil. There's no rhyme or reason to it like there used to be. People do evil things just to do evil things. And he feels like a big failure. He says, I feel outmatched. And my favorite scene is when he goes to visit his cousin Ellis, who was also a law enforcement officer, but he's in a wheelchair because he was shot by a criminal. And Ellis lives out in the middle of what we would call a godforsaken country, flat desert area, nothing out there. And he's just living in this shack out in the desert. And Tommy Lee Jones goes to check in on him. And he walks into the shack and there are these feral cats running all around the place. And he asks Ellis, how many of these things you got? And Ellis says, well, it depends on what you mean by got. Half of them are wild and the other half are outlaws. And I think that's a beautiful metaphor for the whole movie. That's exactly how Tommy, Jean, uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character feels. There's no law and order anymore. The criminals are like feral cats just going all over the place and he can't, can't bring them in. Everything's out of control. And at one point in the kitchen, Tommy Lee Jones is standing in front of the kitchen window and he's staring out into the desert, which kind of reflects the, the vacuum, the emptiness in his own soul that he feels. And he says, I always thought that when I got older, God would show up in my life somehow, but he hasn't. And I don't blame him because if I were him, I wouldn't think too highly of me either. And Ellis says, you don't know what God thinks. Well, we do know what God thinks outside of Christ 
He doesn't think too highly of us. We're under his condemnation. But in Christ, he thinks the world of us. And he thinks the world of us, not because we're failures, but because he's given us the grace to see that we're failures and find our only hope in his son, Jesus Christ. You can't love Jesus as anything else but as a failure. To love Jesus from any other stance as a fa- uh, than as a failure is to love Jesus of your own making, like Peter thought he loved Jesus, a Jesus of his own making and not the Jesus of grace. Only failures can love the real Jesus of grace. So whatever failures you have had or are having, the love of Jesus Christ is extended to you from the cross. Whatever confusions you may have about Christ, the word of God is extended to you so you can see more clearly. But through it all, you can grow in your love for Jesus Christ so that even when you fail, even when you get it wrong, you can say, Lord, you know that I love you. But you first of all have to know that he loves you. He died for you. And if you love him, it's because he first loved you. Grow in that love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the love you show us, for your patience with us, for the grace that you show us. We thank you for the great price that was paid in giving your son, Jesus Christ, so that you could save us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have placed in our hearts that love and pray that it would grow so that even when we fail and even when we fall, we see more of your glory and your grace in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.